This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay. Here he comes. Oh, oh, there he goes. Oh, oh, ah. There goes Amanda. And you just so hear So long, sucker. Reaching I'm still for the alive. vent. What? Okay, full disclosure, I've never actually seen this movie. Oh my God. Look at that. That is awesome. At the time, you're not an iconic character. You're not nothing. You're just a guy on the set where John says, go right to left, tilt your head, do this. It was really more John's puppeteering right. in a sense oh. of an image. I think it helps that I was uh, 155 pounds and almost six feet tall. And even the way the mask laid on the face was kind of eerie. I'm Michael Nathanson, and I'm dead now. Well, not really. I died in the TV show, The Punisher. Well. Not me personally, but my character, Agent Sam Stein. Which got me thinking, I should host a podcast where I talk with other actors and creators about how they brought life, and then ultimately death, to their iconic roles. I mean, our favorite characters never really die. They live on in the hearts and minds of fans for generations to come. Welcome to Playing Dead. Horror films are amazing, aren't they? I mean, it's a unique genre because we're voluntarily watching something that will terrify, disgust, or scare the hell out of us. Now, I am extremely lucky to have two horror legends on today's show. Later in the show, I'm gonna sit down with the original Michael Myers, Nick Castle, also a frequent collaborator behind the scenes with John Carpenter and director of one of my favorite childhood movies, The Last Starfighter. But first, I have someone really, really cool here, and her name is Amanda Wiss. And she has been in lots and lots of iconic movies and also has died in a lot of things. There is this one movie she was in. It was called uh, Friday on Elm Street, the 13th. No, it was called Nightmare on Elm Street, part one, number one. It had no numbers in it because it was the first one and nobody knew there would be a second one, although they probably assumed. You know, I don't think they did at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't. Because the first one didn't actually get its legs until it came out on VHS. Oh, right. I think they knew they had a good horror film, but I don't think anybody was thinking franchise right off the bat. Well, Amanda played Tina Gray in Nightmare on Elm Street, and she has the dubious honor of being the first person brutally murdered by Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street. And... For my money, the worst one, or the most disturbing one, yeah, for many, many reasons, but also the cleverest one. We all understand the premise of Nightmare on Elm Street. There's a bad dude who comes back to haunt the dreams of the children of the parents who killed him because he was molesting a bunch of kids. He was a horrible, disturbed custodian of the high school. And they go and they kill him, they burn him, and then he comes back to haunt their dreams. So how did Amanda Wiss become Tina Gray? What's the story there? First, I want to say thank you. And I'm super happy to be here with you. And yes, Nightmare on Elm Street. I had done a TV movie the year before called My Mother's Secret Life with Lonnie Anderson. And at the time, it was like the highest TV rated movie ever. Wes had seen it. And so he called me in to read for Nancy. Wes Craven, big fan of family TV, sort of Hallmark-style dramas, apparently. I'm not sure why he watched it. It was (laughs) an ABC movie of the week back when they did those. When there were three channels. (laughs) When there were three channels. So he had to watch it, basically. So it was a big deal. I went in to read for Nancy, and then I had the conversation with him. I didn't really know much about horror, but I really loved the script. And we just chatted, and then he called me back for Tina. So when I went back for the callback— it was Heather, me, Johnny Depp, and Nick Corey, and he brought the four of us in. There were other people in the waiting room, but he brought the four of us in, had us improv this party scene, and then told us in the room we had the part. That never happens, right? All four of you that you had the part? All four of us. So he knew already and just wanted to see you and, like, sort of make sure. Yeah, to see our, our, what our chemistry was. 
I hadn't seen that many horror films. So when I read for this movie, I actually talked to Wes Craven and I was like, I don't really know that much about horror. Mm. I'd seen a couple old black and white like vampire movies, but I had read horror and I thought his script read like a great horror novel because the script was really chilling. And, you know, when you read more modern or at least the ones I once sent to me. There's not much story, and it's, it's just a lot. Of, it's like trying to elicit some kind of gross response or exactly. some kind of disturbed response. Yes, and where Wes's script read like a book, like you wanted to know what happened next, not just, you know, where the next blood and guts. And he didn't go into great detail, like in the script. It wasn't like, and then this happens, and, you know, like the description of my death, it wasn't like, and then— you know, her hair gets ripped out or whatever. And the whole concept of your death was like the Marion Crane, Janet Lee death in Psycho because we follow you first in the movie. Yeah. And we all think you're the lead in this movie. Not that you're not the lead. You're the lead to me in them. Thank you. It's not about screen time. It's about <laughs> impact. But that's the idea, right? It's the red herring of total red Tina. herring. Tina is the lead and then she gets axed like Janet Lee, and you're just like, oh, yeah. shit. So what happens? He like disembowels you or something? Yes. He like rips so, your, what happens? So I've had sex with Rod, so I have to die. Not Johnny Depp. This no, is... is he, Jesus Garcia is right. his real name. He went by Nick Corey then, who's gone on to be a wonderful director. and He's more gorgeous now than he was then. Like I, I Impossible. Yeah, he's like aged in reverse, and he's just the nicest guy. So I'm in bed with him, and then Freddie comes. So what the audience sees is just these tears happening in my stomach, and then blood gushing out, and, and then I start flying around the room on tuna wire, and then I fall to the floor and die in a puddle of blood. Fade in. Interior. Tina Gray's house. Night. After a night of passionate lovemaking, Tina Gray is woken up by the sounds of pebbles being thrown at the window. Wearing only a buttoned-up shirt, she ventures outside into the alley to investigate. Who the hell is that? Tina asks. From the shadows emerges a man with hideously scarred and burned face. He wears a striped red and green sweater, a brown fedora, and a glove with blades for fingers. It's the man from Tina's nightmares. It's Freddy Krueger. Tina screams and runs down the alley barefoot. Freddy is close behind, his sharp blades glistening in the moonlight. As she screams and struggles in her dream, her physical body thrashes under the covers of her bed. Her lover, Rod, leaps up, pulls off the covers and watches as her shirt is ripped open and invisible blades slash Tina's body. Tina! Rod yells, unsure of what he's witnessing. Tina, now gushing blood, is pulled up into the air by an invisible force. Her body, whipping around violently, smacks Rod hard, throwing his body into the corner of the room. Tina now completely drenched in her own blood, is thrown against the wall, then dragged up and onto her ceiling by a supernatural force. Tina! Rod screams again as he watches Tina leave a trail of blood on the ceiling as she struggles to break free from the nightmare. But it's too late. Tina drops from the ceiling. Her dead body thuds as it hits the bed, then rolls onto the floor. That death scene ended up being listed on one of the top deaths in any genre, any movie ever made. The way it was shot, too, because he brought back the rotating room from, I think, An American in Paris or one of those uh, musical dance movies. All righty, folks. It's that time again for our segment, Let's Google This Shit! Now, Amanda got this fact kind of right. The dance movie she's thinking about is the Fred Astaire 1951 film Royal Wedding. Now, I highly recommend Googling the scene. Fred Astaire seamlessly dances on every wall of the room. It's absolutely amazing. While the 1919 silent film, When Clouds Roll By, was actually the first movie to use a rotating room, it was Royal Wedding that really showcased what was possible. I'm in the room, and the room is being spun by... Men, possibly women, I don't know. They were outside on a crank. Inside the room, strapped into chairs, is Jacques Haitkin, our cinematographer, and Jesus Garcia. Their perspective never changed, so they don't get disoriented. I have to look like I'm being dragged, but I'm not. And so I had to, like, we had to work out a way to sort of propel my body forward but that looked like I was moving against my own volition. But you're doing it. I'm doing it. We built—we. I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> 
I just showed up on the day. A bunch of really talented people built a bedroom, and it's the same one they used for Johnny Depp's character, Glenn. When he gets sucked into the bed? When he gets sucked into the bed. They're literally men outside on a crank that, that spin the room around, and everything in the room is nailed down, shellacked, glued. So the room spins. I'm always on the floor, but it looks like I'm going up the wall and on the ceiling and all of that. And the cameraman and Rod, there had two like almost like airplane chairs or car chairs, and they were harnessed into them. So they went around with the room. We had to shoot this in sequence because we didn't have any money. And once the blood was introduced, we can't go back. So we rehearsed it a lot. It was like learning a ballet dance. Oh, yeah. So it was was a lot of rehearsal. And then we shot as much as we could in sequence. So I felt a lot of pressure as a young actor to not be the reason that we can't shoot this scene. But Wes was so kind and really trusted that I could make it look the way he wanted it to look. So we rehearsed it a lot without the blood. So we go to start shooting it and the room starts spinning and I am get all the way up till I'm on the ceiling and my ears go and I get completely disoriented. Because the room is turned upside down at this point. Yeah. So you're on the floor, which is actually the ceiling. Yeah, I'm on, or the, vice versa. Yeah, I'm on the floor, but I'm looking up at, at Jake and Jesus and the bed, but I I feel like I'm looking down and I start screaming that I'm falling. And they're like, great, this is great stuff. And then Wes, you know, it's like cut and he comes in. There's this great photo of me crouched down and he's poking his head through a window and he starts to say, you know, you're fine. There's nothing wrong here. This is going to be fine. And then he got disoriented and he was like, okay. We need to speed this up. I, and I was so scared. And I trusted him completely. And he was like, can you keep going? I was like, absolutely. But the rest was sheer terror. Like, I, yeah. I thought I was falling. And I was so disoriented. But when we finished it, and my character falls from the ceiling to the bed, which they wouldn't let me do just for that little bit. And it was so dumb. I'm like, you've dragged me around a ceiling. Yeah. And you've How given me vertigo. Like, Less than 10 feet? Yes, onto a big squishy bed. And they also, like, had somebody that didn't even look like me with a bad wig. And I was like, whatevs. All right. This is Leave so dumb. Leave it to Hollywood. Yeah. Always looking out for the actors in the right situation. I know. Right? I was great, like, thanks. just let me fall to the bed. Nice. That's That would be the fun part. Yeah. So there's this great photo of me crouched down and Wes crouched down next to me, and I remember this like it was yesterday. He was trying to get me to stand up. I thought we were on the ceiling, and I said, if we stand, we'll fall. Oh, my God. And he was so patient and kind because they needed to move on, but I, I couldn't get out of the room. I was like this. I'm on the ceiling. I'm freaking out. I thought if we stood, we would fall. As long as we crouched, we'd stay like bats on the ceiling, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what like, I I'm thought. never going to leave. <laughs> I'm just going to hang here. Yeah. And he talked to me for so long and, and encouraged me to stand, to trust that we weren't going to fall. We aren't on the ceiling. You know, and then they got me out of the room. Everything in that sequence was practical effects. Right. Like, yeah. And you can see it, too. I think that's one of the reasons that movie is so fucking disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> it just really looks real. Yeah. I have to say, some of the scary stuff we shot, though, in Nightmare, like all the boiler room things were in the boiler room basement of an old prison. I think it was called the Lincoln Heights Jail here in California. Just the scariest place I've ever been. The energy there. Bad things happened in this room you know this boiler room so it was innately creepy and scary so I think like you didn't have to try that hard to Mm. conjure up fear like literally grown men didn't want to go down there by themselves like you'd walk into this place and your hair would stand up and so it got to the point where on the set Wes would come up and he'd be like I'm so sorry but today yeah and so like I had to stand in a body bag of eels Covered in sticky, freezing blood. How many eels were in there? Oh, so many. So and like, they were like okay. slithering around. Oh my God, it was so awful. And they said they, they were you? defanged. Right? It was low okay. budget. Who knew? What were you wearing? Literally just this little white shirt and my underwear. It was what you died in. Yes. So yes. they had to keep repeating the thing that you yeah. died in. And then I had to do a cast of my face because they had to have a real centipede come out of my fake face. And then I used an undulating rubbery thing. And so I'm still not sure which one they use because I was really good at making the centipedes look real. That was like my biggest accomplishment on a set. 
It was making that centipede the, look real. Yeah, the centipede yeah. tongue. And then, obviously, I was in the body bag and covered in blood and dragged around in the hallway. And one day, Wes was like, I can see you breathing. And I'm like, I'm not dead. And see I'm like, breathing. and I'm completely panicked. I'm zipped inside a real body bag. And I'm it's like, oh, yeah, okay. What's funny is back then, you know, like, there's nothing to fix in post. There was no post. No, it was. <laughs> this was all practical effects. Yeah, like, yeah. there was literally, they weighed me and then got, like, fishing, like, for a tuna that would weigh about my... And then that's what they pulled me with, was, like, what? a high-test, like, fishing line. So they bought a giant tuna? Not a giant tuna. You're tiny. But I meant <laughs> a, a tuna is... Not, there's no tunas that are... No, tunas, like, yeah, they're, like, my dad was a deep-sea fisherman. They can be, like, 110 pounds or whatever. Still, if the biggest tuna is 110 pounds, that's still a small human being. Yeah. One of our folks in our studio is yelling at me that tuna can be huge. They can be very huge. My dad did deep sea fishing twice a year and would win the pot often, catching the biggest tuna. They'd go off Mexico. We'd go out for 10 days or something. We had fresh canned albacore, smoked albacore. We had a smoker. That's my desert island food. Oh, my gosh. tuna fish salad. I could live on tuna. What makes a great tuna salad in your estimation, Amanda Wiss? Just the right amount of diced celery, but it needs to be smaller than your chunks of tuna so it doesn't overwhelm the flavor. And only a dollop of mayonnaise, people make it too runny. I personally like to add another dollop of mustard in mine, but just enough to give it a little tang. Onion? I keep my tuna salad super simple, but then when I make a sandwich, I'll put onion on a sandwich, possibly relish if people want it. As um, a topping, not as a mixture. Not as a mixture. I keep the salad super light, and I keep it on the drier side because then if you want to put mayo on the bread, yeah. there's nothing worse than an overly drenched tuna salad. It needs to have a tiny bit of crunch, tiny little bit of salt, but may I, I think if you put the mustard in, you have the tang without the salt. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> On tuna salad. In water or oil? Water. Got it. In water. Okay, good stuff. Yeah, definitely This in is water. things that people want to know. Um, you know what? This is the only place you'll get this information. No one ever is going to ask you questions like that. I, I have to have a good tuna salad. I can make a jello mold. Oh. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know how to do anything with jello, but I do make killer fish, all kinds of fish. We grew up on the beach eating fish. So a lot of people would have grown up that way and they've been like, I hate fish. Oh, There's like that fish. person, right? Who's like, I grew up with fish. My dad was a fisherman. I can't look at fish. Oh, my God. I love fish. I'll eat a can of sardines. So from sardines to eels, back to eels. Oh, back to eels. Okay, so you're, oh, so you're in, so just so I have this straight, you're in a bag of eels, you're dragged around in the body bag, your plaster mold of your face. I mean, there's like so much trauma that you had to endure <laughs> just to endure the trauma on film. Yes. And the, fun, the thing that was so funny was having the mask made of your face, the plaster mask, was so bizarre because they literally encased my head in plaster and stuck two straws up my nose and a tiny hole for my mouth. Ugh. And I was like— Are you claustrophobic? Yes. Oh. And I didn't know until that moment. I was still basically a kid. Like, I had never been locked inside anything. And I was like— this is awful. This was scary. And then I just thought, I was like, okay, just breathe and whatever. And, you know, and they were really nice. I had an nice. experience where I guested on a show and they didn't tell me that I was going to have to get, be like this burn victim. And then they proceeded to do like a similar thing to my face. Oh and my I was gosh. like, I was in full panic mode. Yeah. It's hard to stay calm during that. And I've never had to do it since. And they also had to do a cast of my torso because of how I die in the movie. I get eviscerated from the inside out. And so that was also weird because I was super young and they were like, we won't look. So I think they're putting the plaster on and they're like, oh, they were it. grossed out by it? No, oh, they oh, were oh, like oh, just see, trying to see, help yeah, yeah. me save my modesty. Oh, wow. How, how nice. They were nice. In 1984 or whatever. Yeah, because I was like, um, wait a minute. Yeah. Even I want today my... you'd be hard pressed to find that. Yeah, I was like, I want my mom. Hold, please. Oh, um, how old were you at that point? I was pretty young. I was young enough to not want strange men touching my boobs. Yeah, I yeah. get it. I get it. Um, uh, well, I'm still don't want strange men to say, touching my well, boobs. So I'm um, like, wait a minute. I mean, that's actually look, not a maturation thing. I'm gonna stand by. I don't yuck by, anybody's don't, yum. Yeah, I don't. As long as it's consensual. <laughs> by the way, when you're being chased by Freddie in those like sequences, how scared are you in in real life? Okay, well, you know what? Of that, him. That it, it was really interesting. That, okay, there's two different things. One, I'm running down the alley way and he comes and his arms are long and stuff. That wasn't that That's scary. That's the first scene. Yeah. That wasn't that scary in person. It's dark and it's this alleyway. But we were shooting in Venice, California before Venice had kind of gentrified. Uh. And so the alleyway was just strewn with broken glass and needles. Yeah. Somebody went out with a broom. I Why I was barefoot. Like that was one of those things. I, even that night we were shooting, we were like, why did we 
establish me with no shoes on. I mean, even though I was in a dream, it's like, put your shoes on. I, I don't know. So Something. we had to run down. And I was like, well, I'm getting tetanus. I'm going to get hepatitis running down this well, alley. Yeah. And the neighbors were screaming, shut up, because I was screaming. And it was like two in the morning. It's and, not like you could lock down a whole neighborhood back yeah. then with the so, money that they probably gave you guys yeah. to shoot that movie. So that was more just like neighbor trauma. Like running down that, I was like, I'm going to cut my foot open, which by the way, Heather ended up doing in the same alley. Somehow I missed whatever she stepped on and they had to take her to the ER. Did you ever have trouble falling asleep after that? No, but so many people in the movie had nightmares while they were filming about Freddie and that had never happened to me. And then during the pandemic, I had a freaking Freddy Krueger dream that scared me to death. Let's hear it. Can you remember it? Yes. I was on a dock that was sinking and Freddy Krueger comes out of the water like an alligator. Or a tuna. Or a tuna. <laughs> and I'm going to have tuna when I get home. I think that you should. That sounds good. So, Tina. Tina. Tuna. Oh, Tina tuna. Come on. Um, writes itself. It does write all right, itself. All right. So we're, we're in the... All right. All right. No, pandemic so, pandemic so, Freddy nightmare. Yeah. So I'm just... The dock is sinking. Instead of an alligator coming up, for some reason, I'm in a bayou kind of thing. And there's like Spanish moss hanging down and the willow the trees and... Super dark and scary. I don't know why I'm there. And then Freddie comes up and he starts chasing me. And I am screaming so loud that Stephen, who I live with, said he tried to wake me up for like a full minute. And that I was screaming and that then I finally woke up and I was freaked out. And so that that's my one and only and it happened recently. I, I woke up. He didn't kill me this time that I know of. Thank but God. I, I know. Thank God. What's funny is I had Freddy nightmares when I was a kid after I saw that movie. I do remember absolutely being chased by Freddy in multiple dreams when I was a kid. I know. And you feel paralyzed, right? Like yeah. I felt that way in mm-hmm. the dream. Like I was like, I'm not screaming loud enough. And Stephen was like, oh, you're screaming loud enough. <laughs> you, you were totally that screaming. That is insane. That is insane. By the way, can I just say one quick thing? The same convention that I met you, I met Robert Englund. First of all, the nicest human being on the planet. So it's funny because he absolutely haunted my dreams and I was scared to go to sleep for many years after I saw those movies. And here he is in the flesh and he doesn't look like Freddy because he's not burned, he doesn't have the hat, you know. But there's an energy about him that is very much that character because yeah. he's so intense and f- but funny as hell, but lovely and sweet. So once that movie came out, obviously it was a big deal. And then you shot Better Off Dead. Better Off Dead is about somebody trying to kill themselves. I was about to say, the movie itself is a whole... I know. like it, It's like, let's make a teen drama about... Uh, <laughs> I know, and make it a comedy. What was it like working on that? That was probably your biggest movie. Oh, no, you had worked on Fast Times. I worked on Fast Times. But it was so much fun. Literally, we filmed a couple days in L.A., and then we went to Snowbird, Utah. We stayed in these condos, and there was this place called the Tram Bar, and nobody was really there. So, like, we had the whole run of the place. We filmed all day. We'd go to the tram bar and dance to bad jukebox stuff and just laugh all night, get up, repeat. All we did was laugh. It was so much fun. I remember seeing that movie and being like, oh, <laughs> oh crushing my, hard on, oh on you and your you and your co-star. I feel like if he had fought harder for you in a different way, you guys would have ended up together. I believe that Beth did not have the inner resources. She just wasn't very self-possessed. And so she was a young girl who defined her position by the man she was with. Right. And Not so, unlike Lisa in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I have to say, when I went in to read for that part, they ended up not having me read. For Lisa in Fast Times? For Lisa in Fast Times. And it was the casting director, Carrie Frazier, Amy Heckerling was in the room, and Judge. And they had me just do an improv with Judge, and I was so nervous. I was like, 19? I was so flippin' nervous. And we sort of improv the breakup scene And he knew how nervous I was, and I will always love him for, he, like, just put his hand on my leg, and he just, like, okay. You got this. Yeah. Because you have the power in that scene. Yes. And you're, like, very, like, yeah. Yeah. And so— We're we're done. And I needed to show that. And so he totally is the reason that he totally helped me get that part, because I was so nervous, and I just didn't know what I was doing. I would be remiss to not talk about Silverado, which I love so much. So Lawrence Kasdan— post-Empire Strikes Back, wrote this incredible Western that essentially is like a Star Wars movie, but as a Western, because it's like a group of heroes who kind of like meet in various ways. It's so Star Warsy. Yeah. It's a great ensemble. Silverado would work in space. Yeah. 
And Star Wars is kind of a Western. Oh, 100%. Right. The first one, at least, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay, Silverado was still the most magical experience I've ever had. It was yeah. just amazing. And I'll preface it with Brian Dennehy told me one time while we were on the study, he said, take this in because it's never like this and really, really soak this up because this is an unusual experience. And I was, you know, 23 or 22 or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, right. And But he was right. I always have fun on a set. I, that's what I love to do. It's my favorite thing in the world to be on a set. But Sometimes a vibe hits and everyone's there yes. for the right reasons. And Oh, and it was just so joyous. And first of all, we were in Santa Fe, New Mexico in the winter. We were there January, February, and March. So I came in They'd already been there for two months to play the character of Phoebe, and it was just gorgeous. It was snowy. Hooker with a heart of gold. Hooker with a heart. (laughs) Is that what they told you? Yes. I think that was the description. I'm sure it was. (laughs) Yeah. Funny story about being cast in that movie. So I read the script, and it's amazing. And the description of Phoebe is, you know, like, I don't know, Hooker with a heart of gold, but they're like, model good looks. And I'm like, I'm never going to get this part. (laughs) I differ with you on that, but continue. (laughs) So I go into Wally Nasita, who was the head of casting for Warner Brothers, a very powerful woman, beautiful, amazing at her job. So the waiting room is packed. I go in and I sit down and I go, listen, we both know I'm never going to get this part. It says supermodel, good looks. I was like, I just wanted to meet you and I love this script. And I just, I didn't want to waste your time. And she just looks at me with this look of, she was incredulous, just of like, what a jerk. And so she goes, get out of my office. And I go, oh, this didn't go well. And she goes, go back out in the waiting room, put your head on straight, and when you're ready, come back in. So I walk out in the waiting room. By the way, everyone has heard this. So I'm so embarrassed, and I'm standing outside her door, and I'm like, do I knock? <laughs> do I like Hello? Do I, do I, it's exactly what I did. So I'm just standing there going, I thought I was being so like mature and all these things. And I felt like all of a sudden I was like knocking on the principal's door. She goes, Who is it? Who is it? I go, It's Amanda. She goes, Come in. And then she pretended like none of it had happened. Like she was meeting me for the first time. And I read. And I got called back for the part. And when I walk in, Lawrence Kazian is like shaking his head, like this little pipsqueak walks in. And I'm telling them that they're not going to cast me. Anyway, I read it was Lawrence Kasdan. That's how he talks, right? Is that pretty good? It's really good. Not a lot of people do a Lawrence Kasdan imitation. You do a good Lawrence Kasdan. I'm obsessed with Lawrence Kasdan. I mean, he. He's a genius. Yes. If you're listening, Lawrence. We love you. So, anyway, I got the part. I still didn't believe I had the part. This was obviously pre-9-11. My little sister walks me up to the gate, and my last words to her before I got on the plane was, I think they still have me mixed up with someone else. So you really, you're like, I, why, how am I in this? How am I in well, this? Was it a big hit? It, no, it's like it came out. It was like not a, not a hit. It wasn't a not a hit, but it, it's like the return of the Western started the following year, and it just happened to be a couple Westerns came out, including... I think Pale Rider, the Clint Eastwood, Eastwood one. Yeah. And for some reason, that movie and then Tombstone, it, they became like, oh, they brought back the Western. But really, it was Silverado. My dad took the- me to see that movie. I was eight years old. <laughs> I love it. And it was like— Did you relate to Augie? Wasn't that the boy's name in the movie? Oh. No. I think Jeff Goldblum was my favorite. Slick. Oh, slick. <laughs> I just love that there oh. was like a tall Jewish dude named Slick who was like the bad guy. I know, and he was just guy. so great. Those long fingers. I love them the all. He, yeah. I, I will say, I was like obsessed with Kevin Klein. He was like the thinking man's Indiana Jones. 100%. For me. Yeah. But I love everybody in that movie. It's Danny Glover. It's Scott Glenn. It's Kevin Costner. But you have all these actors, and you said you guys would like party, right? You all well, were hanging out. You know what was fun? Because most of the people on this project had worked on The Big Chill. And if you've seen The Big Chill, it, it has the most exquisite Motown soundtrack. It's just every fun, beautiful song oh, you've yeah. ever wanted to dance to or hang out to. But two things happened. Every night after a wrap, they'd rented out a tiny little theater in Santa Fe. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was this little side alley where they'd set up where they showed the dailies. And everybody went and had a beer and watched the dailies. And John Bailey was the cinematographer. Carol Littleton, his wife, was the editor. And oh, she would set some things to fun music. Did you, like Motown playing for some of the like yes, scenes? Or, or, or like in the fire scene, she set it all to the talking heads burning down the house. <laughs> it was just fun. And, and then on Saturday nights after rap, because location you often work Monday through Saturday, there would be a Motown dance party. And there would be like a bunch of beer 
and people would just dance all night. And super innocent, super fun. And because all these stars were in it, all these people would come visit the set, like Diane Keaton and all these people. And then they would come to the Saturday night dance party. And it was just like fun. And, and wow. they'd everybody, you know, go do their laundry at the local laundromat on Sunday and then get back at it on Monday. And then I was there for all the time that I only worked 14 days. So I, I just exploring Santa Fe. Oh, wow. So you have this big iconic death in Nightmare on Elm Street and you've yeah. been in many, many movies, many movies that I love, but you've also died in like a bunch of other shit. Oh my God, just horrible Can you just movies. like list off some of your yes. most memorable deaths? It was intimated that I died in my first TV movie. I did the opening sequence of This House Possessed with Parker Stevenson. And I allegedly get killed by an evil garden hose. That, that snakes up my... And my wardrobe on that was styled by Candy Spelling, Aaron Spelling's wife, and I wore, like, satin disco roller shorts, pantyhose, because that's what you did back then with your shorts, and, like, this little top, and... Um, and then a possessed garden hose strangled you? I'm, I, I, I was breaking into a house in my disco shorts. As disco girls are wont to do. Because why not? And this possessed garden hose... You don't see it, though, but, and then that was it. That, I was just in So the this is the first thing uh, on camera where you've had to, like, like yeah, experience but I, your own death yes, in a visceral way. Exactly. And I was in a movie that I thought was going to die a quiet death because it was pre-internet, but somehow it got saved in the vault. So I did a movie called Shockma with Roddy McDowell that— I love um, it already. Oh, my God. It's about an irradiated baboon. Mm. And he's our professor. We're college students, and it takes place a night of playing live Dungeons and Dragons. And Shakma, whose real name was Hurricane, gets <laughs> gets released and wreaks havoc. And I get killed in the toilet. <laughs> Can you just by a, okay, I mean, that, an irradiated baboon in a toilet? On a toilet? I'm standing on a toilet. I so wasn't you're standing. Yeah, on a toilet, I, was, I wasn't. Which already doesn't mean yeah, make I, any sense. I know. Well, so this is the truth. They have hurricane in an electric fence with a wrangler but it wasn't his owner and this wrangler hurricane was the real name of the baboon yeah but okay we'll call him shockma to make him not confused i feel bad no let's call him hurricane i feel bad for hurricane because the guy whose name i can't remember who owned hurricane usually took him to sets because he had exotic animals for movies which, i don't know it was probably a little <laughs> bit like joe joe tiger guy or whatever but Oh, um, yeah, Tiger Tiger King. Tiger King. Yeah, animals weren't treated so great. No. And so this guy would get him riled up to get because he was just this sweet-natured thing. He didn't want to chase anybody. He didn't want to do anything. So anyway, they would get him riled up. So we had to go to, like, school. They were like, don't stand too close to the fence. Don't make eye contact with him and things like that. So, of course, any time I was spaced out, I realized I was making eye contact with Shockman. I'm like, I'm going to die in my life. Because you just, whenever he felt like it would walk through the electric fencing, like it just, he would just be like, yeah, whatever. I, I don't care about your fencing. So pre my death scene, I have to run down a hallway and go through a swinging door and then it's a bathroom and then Shockma comes in and kills me. So he's in an electric fence. I'm in ballet flats that are slippery. And so the director, Hugh Park, says, you're going to start running. And when you get halfway down the hall, we're going to release Shockma. And then you just want to get inside those doors as fast as you can. And there'll be a crew guy back there to hold the door shut. So I'm thinking about this. And I was like, uh, OK. So many things could go wrong here. Yeah. I'm like, uh, first of all, my shoes are super slippery. I don't think you should really release the agitated baboon. So I said, well, if I fall or slip, what's the safety thing? And he goes, don't slip. That was it. That was my direction. So I... Again, sounds like Hollywood to me. I know. So I'm like, all right. And I was like, well... It's either a movie or a snuff film. <laughs> Hopefully I don't fall. And so I take off running. The baboon literally almost got me. We get inside the door and there's like a guy like my size trying to hold the door closed. And the crew starts running from all directions because the baboon was coming in. Like it was going to break down the rickety set. And so it takes everybody. They hold him. They try to get him calmed down. And I'm standing on a toilet because I'm trying to get out a high window or through an air conditioning vent or something. But the best part about Shockma, besides me dying on a toilet, is we all have walkie-talkies because we're playing 
Dungeons and Dragons and it's dark and we're talking to each other. How old are you supposed to be in this movie? 12? We're supposed to be like college kids. And so somebody on YouTube put together a thing to a song of everybody on their walkie-talkies. It's Christopher Atkins, me, a young actress named Ari Myers, and Roddy McDowell. And every time we talk, we're like, over, 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 over. And it just goes on and it's set to like a... Over. So someone did that, and yeah. then that's got a million yeah. views. And then, for some reason, Shockma's had a resurgence. I don't know. People bring it up all the time. And How do you spell it? S-H-A-K-M-A. And the best oh. part is... The trailer was like an old-timey, like, 50s movie where it's got, like, the red poster and it looks like King Kong and they're like, The word, like, shoots across the the, the screen. And there's a male voice going, Shockma! Oh, wait, we're watching Shockma right now. There she is going into the bathroom. Look at that sweet... The baboon is tiny! That's what you're scared of? I feel like you could kick that baboon in the face. (laughs) She's trying to go through the vent. Oh, wait, then wait. Okay. Here he comes. There he goes. There goes Amanda. And you just So long, sucker. And that's just, like... The sound of what? Some sound guy going. Yeah. But you know what? He's, he does. Oh, oh, oh I'm still alive. I'm still alive. What? I don't. Okay, full disclosure I've never actually seen this movie. Oh my God. Look at that. That is awesome. And in comes uh, oh, Ari Myers. Oh, yeah. And then Christopher Atkins comes in, and Roddy McDowell's our professor. Um, oh my gosh, I should watch this Roddy movie. Roddy McDowell can speak Baboon, though, from Planet of the Apes, can he? So shouldn't he <laughs> yes. be able to say something to him? Uh, I literally, when I got there, I wanted to ask him so badly why he was doing this movie. Because I wanted to go, you're Roddy McDowell. Why are you yeah. here? But it was we were all there because it was back in the day when independent films had lots of money. And then I died in um, a couple other things, and then I, I quit doing movies where I die. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm you're not, like, I can't. I just can't. I don't want to. Have you ever died gracefully in a movie? I was killed by Robert Mitchum in a TV movie. Aww. He shot me and my baby. Wow. <laughs> Robert Mitchum did that a lot, didn't he? He yeah. went after families a lot. Yeah, kids so it was movies. called A Killer in the Family. Jesus. And um, yeah, so uh, that was actually fun. It was Eric Stoltz, James Spader were his sons, and they kidnapped me. And I said gracefully. Have you ever died? Gra- oh, gracefully. This is, no, this is another traumatic. Um, Have you ever just sort of, you know, like died fell in my asleep? Sleep. No. Not so much. So wait, I just want to recap my deaths in in things. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so my first death was killed by an evil garden hose, possessed garden hose. Got it. Freddy Krueger, irradiated baboon. (laughs) That should have been the title of that movie, by the way. (laughs) Robert Mitchum killed me with a shotgun in a TV movie. Oh, I was in a movie called Digital Man, and I played Sergeant Fredericks, and I was shot— Oh, oh, my best death, I have to say, besides Nightmare on Elm Street, was I was in a Gunsmoke movie, and it was based on the true feud between the Tewksburys and the this other family, ranting feuds. I played Lizzie Tewksbury, and I am fighting off the bad guys in, in my final death. I go out just total badass with a shotgun, but I get, like, shot. 10 times and I die, but it was like really amazing. And it was back when they used all the squibs. I don't oh, know yeah. that they use those anymore. They do so, not. so you have to practice because you could blow a finger off. Like you, you, you have to know we're going to do squib one, squib two, squib three, or if they mix them up. So they a grab- lot of that stuff is done, you know, in, yeah, in, in post, post now. Yeah. So you had to know they literally put packs with mild explosives on your body wow. and with blood in them. So when you get shot, you would act out each hit and try not to put your hands where the next one's going to go because you could lose a finger. And so it was like, it was pretty cool. That was amazing. And it was cool to be in a Gunsmoke movie and to play like this woman who like almost saved her ranch from like a whole posse of bad guys. So that death and I think that's it. You are awesome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for dying in so many things. Thank you. For us. Thank you. And in one particular thing that we'll never forget. My pleasure. My pleasure. I feel... um, honored that I still get to be in this business and tell stories. So I, I know, and, right? and that, that cool. things resonate with people. I'm freaking lucky and I'm super grateful. And as are we for your talent and your person. Thank you for having me. Nick Castle is a renowned filmmaker. He's directed such films as uh, The Last Starfighter, The Boy Who Could Fly, Dennis the Menace, and uh, Major Pain. You may be asking, Why do we have this guy on as a guest for a show about death? Well, 
because when Nick Castle was asked to don a mask as a favor for his friend's low-budget horror movie, he unknowingly became the longest-living killer in the horror genre. Currently responsible, I've worked this out, for 92 deaths. Yeah. Nick Castle is none other than the original Michael Myers in the 1978 horror classic, Halloween. Nick, you have no idea what this means to me. I'm gushing outwardly and inwardly at the moment. I'm just going to start by saying one of the first movies I ever saw in a movie theater on a big screen was a movie called The Last Starfighter. Uh And I cannot express to anyone listening how much that movie influenced me as a kid and in my creative life. So much so that I think I spent my entire childhood until I was probably about 12 thinking that I had some greater purpose on an alien world. And at some point, somebody was going to communicate with me, shoot ray beams or something, lasers into my face, suck me into one of my many video games that I played and explain my true purpose. <laughs> now, this movie is about Alex Rogan, who is, I guess he's probably a senior in high school, played by Lance Guest. And he is sort of living this sort of dead end life in a trailer park with a single mom and a little brother and having to always kind of live out these sort of errands for people. He's sort of like the go-to guy, almost like a Frank Capra-esque story. Am I wrong? Yeah, he's definitely a Jimmy Stewart, it's a wonderful life kind of character. Wants to do big things, is in this stupid little town, and then he realizes at the end that home is where the heart is. That's the moral. And there's a video game console called Starfighter that he's really good at. And one night he breaks the record and he's a big hero in the trailer park. And then he's visited by Centauri, played by the great Robert Preston, who tells him he's actually a candidate to be an actual Starfighter to fight Zur and the Kodan Armada in some galaxy way, way far away. I'm a stupid fan of The Last Starfighter. I'm not going to lie. It is one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. And I will tell you, it really holds up, man. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I did direct that, but I will have to blame Jonathan Betchwell, who wrote it. True, but listen, you're the last name that pops up in that movie, so you're forever emblazoned as the person responsible. To me, I'm sure you were responsible for much of that. (laughs) I take a lot of pride in that particular movie. It was my second one as a director, and so had no experience with sci-fi, which I think shows a little bit in there, if I have to be honest. But why I mentioned Jonathan, of course, is specific is this. It was such a wonderful idea, and I think it could take young people and, and, and inspire them to wish they were Alex Rogan, or even wish they were Lewis Rogan, the brother. So I think I saw that movie and I was like eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed that movie to my kids this week for the first time. I have eight-year-old twins, twin girls. Uh-huh. And I said, I'm going to be talking to the director of this movie this week. And I, and I explained the premise and they both were like, whoa, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and I will tell you, I had to rip them away from the screen to go to bed because I promised I would show them half of it before bedtime. But the question I got most as we were watching it once it happened was, Dad, what's a Playboy? <laughs> Dad, what's a Playboy? <laughs> Dad, what's a Playboy? And my wife was in the other room in the kitchen cleaning up. And I said, loud enough she could hear it. I said, oh, it's just comics. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Like, what was I supposed to say? <laughs> but no movie today could get away with a character like Lewis <laughs> stashing Playboys. And yet in 19, what was it, 84? 84, 84, That was totally fine. Why? <laughs> Tell me why. Oh, I, I have no idea, you know. It seemed like it was on the edge and it was pretty funny. And, you know, remember when he's, he's actually looking at it going, Yolanda, baby. <laughs> yeah, Yolanda. <laughs> I remember Yolanda from my youth. (laughs) I don't know if I threw that in there, if that was John's idea. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm curious, like, how Robert Preston got involved, somebody like that, who obviously famous from The Music Man, and I think around that time he had done Victor Victoria, probably coming off of Victor Victoria, which had been, I think, a pretty big movie at that time. Yeah, you know, the, the character was written as a huckster trying to recruit this kid, but really what he wants is the money. Again, it was uh, Jonathan Betchwell, he said, he's kind of like a music man in outer space. I said, well, why don't we get Preston? I went, could we get Preston? So we, I guess uh, we did. I kind of actually went, think of it as kind of a musical without music. It's a little broader than real life, but it still uh, grabs you and takes you in. Totally. And while I was going to say, that's a great segue to the fact that they made a musical 
out of The Last Starfighter. And I think, did it go, was it off-Broadway? It, it was off-Broadway. It didn't run like, uh, you know, months and months and months, but it had a couple of performances that I remember. I, I went there and saw it, so that was kind of funny. But you weren't involved in the in the creation no, of Not at all. The writer uh, had to give his permission, I think, for them to do it. And it, it was amazing. You know, it was very ambitious, a lot of music. I think it's available someplace. Yeah, I think it's on iTunes or one of the streamers. Like, you can actually listen to it. It's a sweet little interpretation of the story. So uh, I thought they did a nice job. I'm going to crisscross your career until we get to your acting debut that is fairly iconic. Fairly iconic or extremely iconic? It's becoming extreme for me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm sure it has with the resurgence and the new trilogy and everything. Obviously, your relationship with the great Mr. Carpenter goes back to... School, right? You I went to the University of Southern California Film School together. I met him like, oh, 68, something like that. Right. We had classes together, did some movies together when we were there, and just stayed close friends. And also we had a, a, a love of music, and we started to do some music together, and it turned into having fun with some of the scores that we did at film school. John wrote this song for a movie that we that we did in film school that won an Academy Award. The, the movie was a short subject called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. And right. it was a, a story about a, a kid in modern times who considers himself a Western hero and kind of struts around the real city like that. And it ends with a supposed classic Western song that John made and then we both sang on. So that, that really was a, a, a taking off point for us doing more music. And, and he always knew that I, I could sing. And we eventually created this uh, vanity group called the Coupe de Villes. I know them well. Which was with one of John's best friends from high school who also traveled out to the University of Southern California and became a film student and is a great director in his own right, Tommy Wallace. The three of us started really doing stuff together was when John did Halloween, we thought, let's do some songs for the, the rap party. And by that time, we'd already started doing some songs and we came together and did the rap party for Halloween. And that was our first performance of just a few in the history of this <laughs> this fake group. In Big Trouble in Little China, we do the title song at the end of the movie, which was so much fun to do, because I remember when John said, let's do a, t a title song for the movie. I said, well, they let you do that. So just a little backstory in case any of our listeners aren't familiar. John Carpenter was in fact the director on Big Trouble in Little China, and this is after he had a bunch of big hits like The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing. At that point, they were like pretty much giving him carte blanche, right? Oh, this is 20th Century Fox. I don't know what they thought they were doing, but it turned out cool. John wrote the song, and Tommy and I got together, and we all sang on it. And... Oh, you're in that video. Are you in that music video playing keyboards? Yeah, that's right. They did. It was one of the first times I'd ever seen MTV. It might have been early MTV. They showed that little uh, video of the three of us doing this silly song. I have that memory of that music video so clearly in my mind of these three, at the time I thought super old white dudes playing the title track of this movie. And I was like, who are these guys? I think at the time I didn't realize who you guys were when I was like, I don't know, when I was 10 years old when I saw that movie. Oh yeah, no, you can, it's, <laughs> it's buried someplace on YouTube. You can see it anytime. Oh, you can easily find it if you just put in Coupe de Ville's Big trouble. And then... It also is on the DVD of, of the movie. It is. I have the ultimate, whatever the ultimate edition that I could have bought was, I bought it. <laughs> what was the movie you, like, dreamed of making when you went to film school? I walked out of film school enamored with musicals. I, I loved uh, the classical musicals. My first script was something called The Good Old Days, and it was about a couple of guys that were old-time uh, Tim Van Alley guys trying to get it back, you know, trying to convince the studio to do it. And I actually got it to Gene Kelly to take a look at it, and he, he's ready. He said, you know, you're going to do great stuff, but I don't know anyone that would ever do this. So he kind of gave up on it, but and he was right. You know, it wasn't time for it. <laughs> you know, how do you start a, a, a career is in what you get involved with can be not your choice, but the choice of the gods or the fates or the studios. And that's what happened to me. In fact, the only reason I, I did Halloween, he wasn't like going, hey, Nick, come on and help with this. He happened to be shooting it near our houses. And when I heard about it, I said, I'm gonna come down and visit while he's in pre-production, looking at the sets and things like that. And we were just hanging out and I, he's, I said, you know, John, what if I just watched you shoot this thing? Cause now you have the whole crew, I'll see how it's done. 
it'd be good for me when I get to do my own movie. And he went, okay, well, why don't you put on the mask? You have to put on the mask and walk around. I'll pay you some money. You're here anyhow. I guess I was the right height, you know. John has fabricated some reasons for it since then to make it sound better. Like, you know, I had a great walk or my dad was a choreographer, so I had this kind of sense of, of movement. But, you know, I think that was all in, in retrospect, <laughs> trying to come up with some reason for this other than fate. This is what will be on my gravestone. <laughs> but how great to be known for something that is so beloved and... I would say that your performance in that movie is, it's a genuine performance. You're sort of saying, oh, maybe I had good movement. Maybe I knew how to move. I mean, the subtleties and the sort of, and the head turns, that comes from not just some random dude in a mask. Like you had some sense of story, of the moments, of how to play certain moments, of how you would come across space. I don't remember thinking anything other than just putting on the mask. I thought it was cool. And, and now in... Total hindsight, it's a masterful work, and it's just, that whole movie was uh, catching uh, lightning in a bottle. The mask was made by Tommy Lee Wallace, the person that we just talked about, who was the other Coupe de Ville. They went to a toy store on Hollywood Boulevard looking for a mask. They didn't have money to, to fashion a mask, so they were looking for things that were already there that, that they could use. I just love the fact that it started off as a William Shatner Captain Kirk mask. What he thought about that is that he looked up, saw it, and had no idea what it was, who it was trying to be, you know, and saw it as a blank face. And he went, that's a good start there. So now he took it and, and did some stuff with it, took off the sideburns and made it white, cut up the eye holes and stuff like that. And then suddenly you have this blank face that is just uh, scary as hell. So Tommy really hit it out of the park and it's really one of the elements, crucial elements in the picture that really, really make the thing a success. Your performance in that mask, and it's, and like you said, it's lightning in a bottle, you know, they say that you can just, oh, well, anyone could play this or anyone could do this, but it's about the right person and the right moment and just something clicking. And I think that if it hadn't been you, there to put that mask on, in my mind, it would yeah. not have been well, the yeah, same it's, it, movie. It, it, I think it helps that I was uh, like 155 pounds and almost six feet tall. There's something kind of angular. And even the way the mask fit over my face uh, with no beard, there, there's people that call it the castle stretch. The way it laid on the face was kind of eerie. So the, I could see how that all amounted to what it amounts to. But in terms of forethought, I remember that one of the first times I asked John about how to walk. And he said, you know, Nick, you see over there where you start and where you end? Just go over there and walk. Don't ask me stupid questions. Just walk. He's in the middle of 500 other things. So in the beginning of Halloween, the first Halloween, mm. we see the murder of Michael's sister yeah. through the eyes of Michael. You don't realize it's a kid until they pull his mask off at the end. And it, it was a clown mask in the beginning, right? Yeah. Yep. And uh, still like one of the greatest openings, obviously, ever of any movie, because it's just you don't see it coming. It's so disturbing. It sets the tone for all of it. It's not your mama's horror movie. Do you go into Michael Myers psyche when you put that mask on? You know how movies are made. They're done in bits and pieces, you know, so it's not as if it's if it were a play. Yeah, I might have actually had some uh, continuity and thought about what was going on throughout the whole thing. But really, you're starting with maybe a, the first scene might have been 70 minutes into the movie. What the outfit and the mask afford you to do as an actor under a mask is almost not have to worry about continuity. You don't have to show your emotions at all. It's almost why, why the character is what it is. It's just like an enigma. I'm good friends with the guy that's doing the shape in the new new movies. He had to come up with something because now he's taking an iconic character and going, okay, I got to think through this. And he's given a lot of thought to that. At the time, you're not an iconic character. You're not nothing. You're just a guy on the set where John says, go right to left tilt your head, do this. It was really more John's puppeteering right. in a sense of a image. Whatever I brought to it, like you're saying, you know, the way I walked or the fact that I didn't rush across the street after her, I obviously plotted. And so you can plot in very different ways, you know. So whatever instincts I had there were just coming off the top of my head. 
I always wanted to be a director, a writer, and I went to Santa Monica College, a junior college here right out of high school, and they didn't have any film programs, and so they had theater. So I said, well, let me direct theater then, and the person said, no, you can't direct theater unless you act first. So I had to go to an acting class, and it was the most scary thing ever. The idea of standing in front of an audience, trying to remember lines. I did my first thing. It was some Shakespeare thing. I was a total wreck, and I finished the stupid thing. I walked right down the center aisle, left the building, and quit. <laughs> what was the scene you were doing? Do you remember? Uh, yes, it was Julius Caesar. And it was just <laughs> awful, awful. Yeah. Although in the latest Halloween that David Gordon Green is doing, I have my first on camera, no mask, professional job acting. <laughs> do you have a line? I do have a line. And I can't tell you the one, uh, but I'm acting with one of the leads and it's pretty hilarious. And I just heard from Carpenter yesterday. He said, Carpenter yeah. sent me a note, uh, an email. He said, I just watched Halloween Ends and I saw you in the movie and I was horrified. Yes. You're trying to <laughs> screw up my franchise. Stop it. He's like, I put you in a mask for a reason, Nick. You asshole. Oh, my God. He's like, if you need me to, like, spell it out why, I'll do it. But I thought it was pretty obvious when I handed you that mask in 1970-whatever <laughs> that you should just leave that on. Oh, God. Uh, I can't wait. Can you give us some fun, like, behind-the-scenes anything about this new trilogy and kind of how that all transpired? Blumhouse got the rights to do some more Halloweens. And they came up with a, just an unusual idea, giving it to David Gordon Green, who's like, you know, it's coming out of comedy, basically. They had an, a notion of doing a 40 years later thing and what Jamie would be like, her, her character would be like, Laurie Strode, and, and the just general uh, bones of it. And they went and pitched it to John because they wanted to get his blessing. Blumhouse wanted to get him on board and, and be a... Uh, executive producer and maybe coax them into doing the music again, which they wound up doing, which was, I think, really cool. And so John heard the idea, liked it, and just went with it. At one point, they were looking for who's going to play the shape in the new ones. And they said, well, he's 40 years later. They're looking for these other stuntmen and things like that. And then the person that does the promotion and basically my agent for these personal appearances who is in contact with some of the people in doing the casting, said, why wouldn't you use Nick? Why wouldn't Nick be the one? He's exactly 40 years later. It was him. And they said, well, would he want to do it? And so David and I got on the phone to discuss it. And I thought it was kind of a cool idea. I read the script. There was a lot of physical stuff in it. I said, you know what? I am 70 at the time. <laughs> See this not working at two in the morning when they want to do take 83, you know, and I'm hobbling around. I said, why don't we do something where I, I get to put on the mask and have fun with a cameo? And, you know, you get another guy that has the chops and also the physicality. to do. It's a legacy. It's a legacy part. It's a legacy part. And uh, but David was great. You know, he really respected my work as a director and writer and the fact that I was the shape at the beginning. He sent me the scripts and elicited comments, which I did. And he took some of them. And that was great. I got to be a collaborator on a movie again after all those years. And, and so I got to use some of those skills and help out. And then what was also fun is he said, Nick, would you do the breathing of the character in post-production so that that's you throughout the whole movie? And I went, of course. For the whole movie. Yeah. So I got to go in, in post-production, look at the whole movie and do that, you know, uh, ADR. Just give me one. Just give me one. Just, oh, you I want, just need to hear one. Well, that's going to cost yeah. you $150. Okay. There's two. <laughs> wow. That sounded really breathy. Yes. <laughs> They're like, no one can do the breath the way Nick can do the no. breath. Let's be honest. He might not be able to run the same way he can 40 years ago, but goddamn that breath. That's right. Exactly. And then something we haven't talked about is John's music uh, for something like Halloween is un- Oh, don't get me started. Yeah. What What is that sort of synthesizer-y kind of, it's like gunslingery. It's got like some Western, it's got some modern day, sort of got an 80s vibe. It's, 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 it exists in its own yeah, world. Yeah, you know, he, he thought of the synthesizer as a cheap way of doing an orchestra, you know, because they had no money, couldn't bring in a 20 piece of orchestra. So that provided him with the opportunity to kind of really embellish it. And then, you know, his, his just instincts are, are really good. He's always been a pretty good musician and just has 
a good feel for musical scores. But I remember Tommy Wallace, who was one of the editors on Halloween, having finished the, the cut, they screened the cut with no music and said, hey, looks like it works. They put the music on it uh, right after John did it and they went, oh my God, this really works now. They really understood it. Only then, only then at the end that this thing really was something potentially special. Did he write that while he was working it? Like when did that come into the process? I think it was very close to the end. It was after the editing okay. process. He might've started it during the editing and come up with maybe the theme idea. I wanna do five, four time, let's start fiddling around. But then I think he put it against the, the, the visuals and that kind of gave him a sense of uh, how to proceed. Because like everything else you said, it's like when you find the mask, yeah. when you find the bit yeah. of music, like all of it together makes yeah. it what it is. It's not like one thing that yeah. just works. It's a combination of inspiration and imagination and a team yeah. of people. Sometimes that team is just John Carpenter in his own brain, but like many times it's a lot of people. I just think like what that movie would not have been without oh. that music without that yeah, theme. You know, it's, it, it really does the job. I, I wanted to ask you just quickly about, I, I have read so many random stories and I don't know what's true, what happened and how you were involved and when you weren't involved. There was a movie called Hook that came out in 1991 yep. uh, that Steven Spielberg directed. I see your face. You're looking at me like, ugh, that one. <laughs> but I am so curious because Hook is definitely another movie from my childhood, but you were involved in the inception of that and in the creation of that. And could you just tell like what, what happened there? Because I would have loved to see Nick Castle's hook personally. That's just my two cents. <laughs> it's so many years now. I think I can talk about it without, you know, disturbing anybody's feelings. Yeah. I had done a movie called Tap with Gregory Hines and Sammy Davis Jr. And the studio really liked it. And they said, what else do you want to do? And me and the producer, Gary Adelson, started looking around and Gary met Jim Hart, who had a an idea basically at that point for Hook. He said he had the title, here's the story, here's what we wanna do. It's about, you know, uh, that Peter Pan, instead of going back to Neverland, decides he wants to come to the real world and it's later and he's forgot who he was. And so I, I thought, that's fantastic, it's a great idea. He got the idea, it was this kid. This kid said, what if Peter Pan grew up? What would happen? And so uh, that's, he stole from his, the best, <laughs> stole from your kid. Yeah, we, totally. we went to the head of the studio and he liked the idea. He said, Nick, would you shepherd the screenplay? And I said, I'd love to. So Jim and I, Jim Hart and I worked, I don't know, for a long time on coming up with a storyline, making it, making sense of it, a lot of work. Came with a first draft that was really good. I mean, it really, it really told you what the movie's gonna be about. And suddenly by that time, the wonderful uh, head of the studio that loved me left to be head of CBS. And another guy came in who didn't know me from Adam and just saw this as an opportunity to make it not just a Nick Castle hook movie, but the biggest movie ever made, you know? So that's where the transition happened. And so I just kind of uh, went on to other projects and Stephen came on and he took it and kind of made it his own and, and, and tried to shape it into, uh, you know, a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> what would your version have been as opposed to what we saw? You know, Steven decided to make it kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it, like uh, set bound. You know, it seemed like it was on a set. It seemed like it was done like, maybe he saw The Wizard of Oz just the day before and he said, you know, if we do this like The Wizard of Oz, it's it's all fantasies. My idea was the opposite because what we're trying to have people believe is that the fantasy was real actually. So when he comes into the real world and he goes back to Neverland, yeah. it's not the play place that we thought it was, it was real. It, yes, it had fantasy elements, you could fly and stuff like that, but it was gonna be grittier, Gritty. it was gonna be real. You would see real person going back into a fantasy world. And that's why I thought that would have been the difference. That was the main difference. Well, I was still on the picture. We actually went out to Dustin Hoffman and, and Robin at the time. So they were involved as I was still working on the picture. So those are your ideas. Your casting ideas originally were those two guys. Actually, my original casting ideas was Kevin Klein for Hook and uh, Tom Hanks. It wouldn't have been as, as young a picture as, as I think what Stephen did. 
Stephen, I've seen recently a, a, a thing where he said that was the one movie I just got lost in. Well, I have to ask you a very important question. What would you say is a favorite death of yours in the history of cinema or TV? Well, the first thing that jumps to mind is uh, poor old Janet Lee in the shower. Yes, the classic death scene from Hitchcock's Psycho. Yeah, that was crazy when I first saw that. And it's so iconic now. I, I would have to choose that as a memorable death scene. The other one, I think, was Captain's Courageous, just the sadness of losing Spencer Tracy. And I remember seeing that at a young age. And that was really experiencing death in its sorrow. So uh, I'd, I'd pick those two. Nick Castle, icon of many movies, in them, behind them, around them, on top of them, inside them. Thanks again. And um, yeah, stay well until soon. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. And so, my friends, we gather here to mourn the death of Ms. Tina Gray. She is survived by her parents and her best friend, Nancy Thompson. She was a member of the High School Abstinence Club. Well, until recently. <clears throat> she will be remembered for her kind smile, talented acrobatics, and her delicious tuna salad sandwiches. We would also like to mourn the victims of the serial killer, Michael Myers. They, like his killing methods, were unique and unpredictable. They all had a story to tell, but their lives ended abruptly before the credits could even begin to roll. In our next episode, we talk with Dante Bosco, who played Rufio, Rufio, in Steven Spielberg's version of Hook. We talked to Nick Castle. He was one of the writers on the film. Right. I would say that your version of Rufio fits in line with his version of probably what Rufio was going I to be. I think so. I did talk to Nick at Comic-Con. We talked about the darker version of the film. Because the story of Peter Pan is actually the original. It's pretty dark. And child heartthrob Noah Hathaway, who played everyone's first crush, Atreyu, in The NeverEnding Story. In the book, he talks. So imagine, imagine he's going, Atreyu. Please save me. And he's all monotone and depressed. And like that, that's so much worse in my opinion. Like, what are you doing? Why won't you help me? <laughs> Playing Dead is hosted by Michael Nathanson. Hey, that's me. Produced by Charlie Webster. Written and produced by Jill Marie Hoffman. Edited by Aaron Florence. Executive producers Charlie Webster and yours truly, Michael Nathanson. Special thanks to Kyle Epler and Steven Sletton. Produced by Lionsgate Sound and Magic Scope. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. <laughs> <laughs>